Welcome to Sarah's Century, a 12-episode podcast which explores how revolution, war, and immigration affected a single individual. 99-year-old Sarah Mebel left Russia forever on September 11, 2001. This is the story of her life. Episode 3, A Barracks Home. In the previous episode, we saw how Sarah Mabel was born in the Belarusian town of Gomel in the middle of the Russian Civil War, when the communist Reds were fighting the anti-communist whites. As was the case for so many towns in the former Russian Empire, control of Gomel bounced back and forth between the combatants. Its Jews paid for the political instability in the form of a pogrom that took place when Sarah was just 12 days old. Sarah's parents left Gomel for Russia proper, taking her to Saratov and then Astrakhan in the Volga region of Russia's heartland. But the Mabels moved again in what Sarah thinks was the year 1926, this time to Astankina outside Moscow. When I asked her why, she told me she didn't know. Moscow's the capital. Maybe my parents didn't like Astrakhan? Astankin is known now for its colossal TV tower and for a relic from Stalinist times, the grand-sounding exhibition of achievements of the national economy. Russians call it by its Russian initials, VDNH. Today, Astankina is just one more part of Moscow's giant sprawl, but in the 1920s, it was still very much a village. Sarah explained, Then, it was a small place with small houses. The Mebel family lived in one of those small houses, a wooden one, in a single room with a new addition to their household, the servant Dunya, a peasant a little younger than her parents who apparently had a crush on Sarah's father, something that seems to have amused rather than threatened Sarah's mother. I asked Sarah what she remembered about those days, and she described one of her only memories, an outing she took with Zalia when she was around 10 or 11 years old. She giggled several times while telling me how she and her father rode a tram some five or so miles into the center of Moscow and spent some time in the capital together. Then Zalia deposited her at a stop where she could get on a tram back to Astankina because he had business somewhere in the city. Sarah doesn't remember what kind of work he did, but she knew he'd been trained as an economist. According to the web entry I found listing victims of Stalin's terror, he was a planovic, a planner, someone who helped draw up the Kremlin's central economic plans. Zalia may have been an economist, but he didn't notice that his daughter had no money with her, not a single kopeck. It never even occurred to me that I could get on the tram without a ticket. I walked. In the evening, my parents laughed about it. That's all I remember. They laughed? 
a 10 or 11 year old left by her father at a tram stop. She has to walk some five miles home by herself because she's afraid to get on public transportation without paying. This sounds cruel, not funny to my ears. But I think these were more innocent times, justified or not. Zalia clearly didn't think Sarah was in danger of any kind, nor evidently did her mother. Maybe they wanted to see her grow up a bit, become more independent. In any case, just like when she told me how her father hit her the time she followed a magician to the other side of Saratov, Sarah didn't tell this story with any sign of bitterness. Nor did she ever, in all the time I've known her, say anything the least bit negative about either of her parents. She herself was laughing about the mix-up. Maybe it's because she had so few memories of Zalia. And ironically, I'm not sure they were all that reliable. Another story she told me had to do with the time he took her into Moscow to see the brand new Metropolitan subway system. My papa explained to me why it was built, how it was built, and so on. It made a very powerful impression on me because the first station I saw was really beautiful. Like her fellow citizens, Sarah was proud of the Moscow Metro. You know the Metro? There really are beautiful stations, right? Yes, the stations in the center of Moscow are amazingly beautiful, especially to someone like me, who grew up using the subway in New York City. The Moscow Metro was one of the early Soviet Union's greatest accomplishments. The first stations were decked out with cavernous ceilings, mosaics, marble walls, chandeliers, and sculptures. They were really grand and they symbolized how Stalin and his regime were supposedly bringing everyone towards some bright socialist future. But here's the problem with Sarah's recollection. The actual subway trains didn't start running until May 1935, more than a year after Zalia was put in prison. Maybe Zalia had some special access to the stations before they were open and before he was arrested? I asked Cal State Long Beach professor Andrew Jenks, who's written on the Moscow Metro's history, what he made of this. He pointed out that the artwork was the last element to be added. He also told me that the builders were under intense pressure to get everything done by the scheduled opening date. In other words, it's unlikely that Zalia and Sarah ever saw an elegant metro station together. It sounds like she confused this trip with something that happened later, Maybe a visit to the metro with her best friend's older brother, a transportation engineer in Moscow who seems to have been like a surrogate father to Sarah. It makes sense to me that some 70 years later, she would conflate these particular memories. The metro trip supposedly took place after the Mebels left Astankina for the place Sarah remembered as Krasnogorsk. In the late 1920s and early 1930s, this area was even farther from Moscow. Just outside the capital's outer ring road, Krasnogorsk is part of Moscow's giant exurbs now. But back then, it wasn't called Krasnogorsk. It was just an area with a cluster of peasant villages, one of which was called Banki, and another of which was called Pavshina. It wasn't yet connected to the center by metro or tram, or even by suburban railway, the so-called Elektrichka. When I asked Sarah if a suburban rail ran to Krasnogorsk back then, 
She looked at me like I was delusional. There wasn't an elektrichka. Okay. To get there from Moscow, you had to get on a regular railroad train on its route northwest toward the Baltic country of Latvia. Then you had to ride for around 16 miles to the Pavshina station. After that, you had to walk a little over a mile. If it was winter, you walked in the cold and snow and dark. If it was spring, you no doubt slogged through mud on unpaved streets. This was a serious commute if you had to be in Moscow on a daily basis, as Sarah did by the year 1938, and except for the war years in Siberia, until she finally moved to the center in 1957. So the Mebel family exchanged their single room in a small wooden house a few miles from Moscow by tram for a single room in a large one-story wooden barracks much farther away. I don't know why, but the most likely reason is that the new location put them closer to Gita's job at a medical facility that was part of some giant state-run optical factory. In fact, when the town was incorporated in 1932, there was some talk about naming it not Krasnogorsk, but Optikogorsk. The word for barracks in Russian is barak. Their barracks had a long corridor along which there were doors to each household's room. In the Mebel's room, there were two beds, probably a third folding one for Dunya, and an upright piano, a pianino. The family, including Dunya, ate together on what Sarah said was a very pretty table with carved legs. This table, along with everything else they owned, would disappear during the Second World War. Of course, there was also a samovar, those elegant contraptions designed for heating water. If you were from Russia, you had to drink tea, and you certainly couldn't expect to have anything other than a kerosene burner, a primus, or a wood-fueled stove for cooking. That's where the samovar came in. Samovars, self-boilers in the literal translation, contain a chimney that you fill with hot coals. The coals surround a chamber that you put water in and they keep it hot for hours. The water comes out a little spigot. So you take a handful of loose tea and put it in a teapot with some of the boiling water and you let this sit on top of the samovar, sometimes all day. When you want some tea, you pour as much of the concentrated tea as you want into a cup, and then you add more hot water straight from the spigot. We have a samovar in our house that we inherited from my husband's mother, who, to remind you of the family connections, was Sarah's first cousin. Her mother was Zalia's sister, a member of the Mebel family who emigrated from Belarus in 1925. She and three of their four children went to join her oldest son, and her husband, Rabbi Moses Eder, in the United States, where the rabbi was brought to Harrisburg, Pennsylvania, a year or two earlier to lead a local synagogue. Zalia's sister and the three kids, including my future mother-in-law, had to wait in Cuba until they were given permission to enter the United States. They schlepped that huge, heavy brass samovar all the way. The samovar that belonged to Sarah's family had pride of place on a marble table in their barracks room. 
but it was only for decoration. Dunya did everything in the room with the Primus stove. Dunya didn't like using the shared kitchen in the barracks. Clearly more competent than their former servant in Astrakhan, Dunya somehow managed to make soup every day on this one kerosene burner. She'd also prepare some kind of dish with meat or fish and potatoes, and she made sure to serve something sweet, usually compote, a syrupy dessert made from dried or fresh fruit. Needless to say, there was no refrigerator and no heat. Their room was kept warm by a wood-burning stove that Dunya fetched fuel for from an outdoor woodshed. Dunya also hauled water, bringing it inside from a well in large iron buckets. Then she'd boil it on that same Primus burner, I guess. The buckets were kept covered and they stood on a small table in the corner of the room that served as their kitchen. There was no indoor plumbing. To wash, they used something called a rukamoynik. This word translates as washstand, but the literal translation is hand washer. Rukamoyniks still exist, or at least they did in July 2002, which is when Sarah described a rukamoynik to me after reporting she just happened to see one on a Russian TV show. This is how they used it. A little bucket's attached to the wall with a nail. You push on it, and cold water comes out a hole in the bottom. That's how we washed our hands. For actual baths, they went weekly to a public bathhouse. Public baths were part and parcel of Russian culture at the time because the great majority of people didn't have running, let alone hot water. Women and men bathed in separate facilities and in the best equipped places, went in and out of a hot sauna and a cold water pool. Bundles of dried birch leaves were usually on hand so bathers could smack themselves with them the sauna's heat having opened the pores that were now supposedly releasing trapped impurities. There are still bathhouses all over Russia, though now that there's indoor plumbing, at least in the cities, people tend to use them for the sociability, and especially in the men's baths, for the vodka drinking that's part of the ritual. In the U.S., you can usually find a Russian bathhouse in areas where Russian emigres are concentrated. On East 10th Street in Manhattan, there's a place called the Russian-Turkish Baths that's celebrating its 125th anniversary. Near Philadelphia, and not far from where Sarah is now living in a nursing home, there's the Southampton Spa. But back to the Mabel's Barracks and another aspect of no indoor plumbing, the toilets. Everyone used an outhouse several yards from the building that they had to walk to across some wooden planks. Sarah didn't like talking about toilets, but I had to know. Was it dirty? Yes. It was dirty. Let your imagination go wild here, and then realize you're still envisioning a much nicer scene than that of the actual unheated privy used by dozens of people. You should also keep in mind that you're not imagining how it smelled. I asked, did anybody come to clean it? This question sparked a detailed memory about Alexei Ivanich, their janitor neighbor who cleaned toilets for a living and apparently got around town on a horse. Who paid him, I asked. Sarah reminded me with some impatience. Everything was government. Of course. As for Alexei Ivanich and his wife, Sarah stressed that they were Russian, that is, not Jewish, and very, very simple people. 
But their children, there were five of them, had all kinds of doors open to them in the socialist motherland, and it sounds like Gita pitched in to help the kids along. Sarah told me how much they loved her mother because Gita brought them books and read them stories. Two of the girls were around Sarah's age, and they became her good friends. When the German army was outside Moscow in October of 1941 and the state engineered a mass evacuation, Gita and Sarah joined three of the daughters in Siberia. Like Sarah's father, Alexei Ivanich was a victim of Stalin's terror. Unlike Zalia, he survived, returning home after the war. Alexei Ivanich's crime was a remark he made that someone must have reported, disparaging the ability of the great Soviet state to better the lives of its people. After his release, he confided to his family. When his daughter was with us, she laughed and said how her papa, when he returned from prison, said, равно, whatever. I was telling the truth when I said that meat was cheaper before the revolution. Despite Sarah's closeness with the daughters, it wasn't until decades later that one of them dared tell Sarah this story. Just as family members often lived by a don't ask, don't tell policy when it came to family histories, acquaintances and even good friends rarely shared stories about arrests and other political misfortunes. It was just too dangerous, especially because if you claimed your arrested family member was innocent, you were implying that the omniscient state had at best made a mistake and at worst was committing its own crime of political repression. People were also terrified that their failure to report someone's breach rendered them equally guilty. It often became a case of, I better inform on you to the secret police before you inform on me. In Alexei Ivanich's case, he either complained about the price of meat within earshot of someone who was afraid of being guilty by association or by someone with a big deadly mouth. Sarah was still incredulous about what happened to her friend's father. Can you imagine what it meant to arrest an uneducated man for such a remark? If she hadn't heard this story directly from the daughter, she wouldn't have believed it. Even as late as 2002, when Sarah and I talked about this, she still hadn't fully grasped the randomness and extent of the mass arrests in the 1930s. Sarah speculated. Maybe they were told to arrest a certain number of people in Krasnogorsk. As incredible as that may sound, she was onto something. There's actually something called an Operational Order 00447, dated July 30th, 1937, that was issued by Nicholas Yezhov, the chief of the secret police, then known as the NKVD, that established numerical quotas, goals really, for arrests and executions. This top secret document was revealed to the public in 1992, when long suppressed documents about the Stalin years were being released. Yezhov came up with some nice round numbers of people to be arrested, most of whom were destined for prison camps, but many of whom were explicitly slated to be executed. In other words, in this document, the number of 250,450 that was established for both categories preceded any actual crimes committed, real or imagined. And they varied according to the different regions in the USSR. 
By the late 1930s, Soviet citizens, in factories, on collective farms, and yes, in the police apparatus, knew very well that state numerical goals were designed to be exceeded, not simply met. Consequently, Yezha's projections for arresting and murdering so many Soviets lowballed the number of people who were actually hauled in by the NKVD, a few of them lucky enough to be released, like Alexei Ivanich, but tens of thousands who were not. Though details about the Stalinist terror were available by the end of the 1980s, Sarah clearly didn't know as much as she might. She took her first trip outside the Soviet Union in 1988, when Mikhail Gorbachev loosened things up, including allowing ordinary people to travel internationally. She stayed with us in Poughkeepsie, New York during her month-long visit. We got a hold of a Russian-language version of a long-censored memoir for Sarah, Journey into the Whirlwind, by Gulag survivor Yevgenia Ginsburg. I remember how tears were streaming down Sarah's face as she read how Ginsburg, a good communist who was never part of any opposition to Stalin or his policies, was nevertheless arrested, brutally interrogated, placed in solitary confinement, and eventually dispatched to a Siberian labor camp. No doubt it was devastatingly painful for Sarah to read about the horrors that her father may have faced during his own experience in the whirlwind. No wonder Sarah idealized her family's life in Krasnogorsk. Let's go back to that single barracks room containing Zalya, Gita, Sarah, and Dunya. To me, it sounds like a sad existence. They lived on top of each other. Life wasn't easy. They don't seem to have had much money. Sarah remembered how Gita took her one good piece of jewelry, a gold and platinum bracelet, and sold it to get cash to buy food. Yet Sarah insisted that they were fine. I don't remember being poor while Papa was with us. She adored her father. She adored her mother. When they were all together, they were a family. They were whole. For Sarah, this was a joyful, not a deprived childhood. For Sarah, this crowded barracks room was home. She didn't even call it a barracks. She didn't call it an apartment. She didn't even call it a room. She called it by the Russian word for home. Dom. Sarah Century is created, written, and produced by Laurie Bernstein. Robert A. Emmons Jr. assistant produced, recorded, sound designed, edited, and mixed the episodes, with assistant editing and mixing by Anthony Diaz, and additional help by Maggie Montalto at Rutgers University Camden. The series opening music is Russian Dance by Yeryona, and the ending credits track is The Situationists by the FWB. Additional music for our series is by Pottington Bear and others, and is sourced from the Free Music Archive using Creative Commons licensing. Visit our website for each episode's full music credits. If you like what you've heard, don't forget to subscribe and rate Sarah Century on iTunes. You can get more information and the full episode's credits about this and other episodes at sarahcentury.blogs.ruckers.edu. Our website, created by Kate Blair at Rutgers Camden's Office of Web, New Media, and Design, contains supplemental material like 
photos, artifacts, letters written by Sarah and others, and a family tree. Because the writing of history is an ongoing enterprise, you can also find updates and corrections as part of our ongoing quest to document Sarah's story. Special thanks to Julia Zavatsky, who brings us the beautiful voice of Sarah. With just a few exceptions, everything Julia says in the podcast is a direct quote from taped interviews or letters. Thanks also to support from the Digital Studies Center at Rutgers University Camden and to the Rutgers Camden Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Sciences. This podcast would not be possible without Bob Weinberg, cousin to Sarah and husband to Laurie. Sarah's Century is dedicated to Sarah Zalevna Mebel, survivor extraordinaire to whose life we tried to do justice.